Welcome to the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics, your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. Be sure to hit the follow button and turn on those notifications to stay up to date on our latest releases. Today's podcast is the recording of the NAEB Causal Inference Methods and Applications in Tech session at the ASSA annual meeting on January 6, 2023. Over the course of the next two hours, you'll hear presentations of papers from Susan Athey of Stanford University, Wen Jing Zhang of Netflix, Joseph Kuprider of Amazon, and Eleanor Dillon of Microsoft, as well as discussion from Wilco Scholz Mallendorf of Wayfair, Jeffrey Ferris of Amazon, and Eleanor Dillon. The entire session is moderated by Susan Athey. Without further ado, let's get to the panel. All right, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to see you here at this NABE session. Um, I'm Susan Athey. I was telling everyone I'm a little scattered this morning because I'm also the president-elect of the AEA. So this is a, I did the whole AEA program and I have a lot going on in this meeting um, every second. But I'm really excited to start out the meeting with this session where I actually get to be a scientist instead of an administrator, which is always what you're hoping for. Um, this, we've got a really great lineup today. We're gonna, this is going to be a little bit of a non-standard session, which I'm always grateful to NABE for making things interactive and fun and not um, following a, 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 pl a regular playbook. So we're going to do um, 12 to 15 minute presentations and then we're going to transition into a panel where we're going to talk about um, the use of these techniques and careers in tech, so get your questions ready. So actually, we're, gonna, we're starting at 8.04. We're gonna do 12 to 15 minute presentations. And first up is Joseph Kubinder from Amazon. Thank you. All right, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about experimentation. The way the presentations are gonna work is we're gonna move from experimentation to observational studies throughout the whole experiment we're gonna transition through. Um, so I'm gonna start very much with experiments. At Amazon, we do a lot of different experiments, a lot of different types. Experimentation is really important. Um, and so I'm going to talk specifically about pricing experiments, the constraints that we have with pricing and then how we overcome them and what kind of, a, what kind of science question economists answer to better do experiments. So I'm going to overview what pricing experiments is. We call it pricing labs. Um, and then I'm going to talk about different techniques that we have to reducing noise, whether through improved experimental design or better estimators, as well as reducing bias through stuff like cluster randomization. Um, and so the point of price experimentation at Amazon is that we want to test specific policies. We're not measuring elasticities. Our prices respond to all sorts of different factors. I'll explain a little bit of those factors, but I can't explain a lot. But <laughs> I'll briefly summarize some of those factors. Um, and so we do A-B tests. And another constraint in Amazon is that we don't give different customers different prices at the same time. That's against policy. We're never allowed to do that, so we can't even do that for experiments. And so in order to go around that, we randomize by product. And so a group of products will be assigned to treatment, a group of products will be assigned to control. Um, and that's the basic structure. So here's a nice visual of kind of how an experiment works. Um, we have a baseline period where all the products are assigned to control. And then once the experiment starts, half the product is assigned to treatment, half the products are assigned to control. And you can do a difference at difference to estimate the treatment effect. Relatively straightforward. But again, like I said, one of the things that's difficult is that our prices fluctuate based on a bunch of different factors that might have nothing to do with what we're testing, right? Um, they might change based on costs or prices or promotions at other stores or our own inventory levels or our own costs, which vary over time. And so a lot of these are going to change and our price is going to change during our experiment, again, unrelated to the policy that we're testing. But it also means that the products that are affected by our policy might change over time. 
where if we're like, if we're testing a policy that changes how we change our price in response to a promotion at another store, for example, the products that are promoted at another store are going to change week to week. And we're not going to know prior to the experiment which products the other stores are going to promote. And so these are unknown what products are going to be tested. And so we set, have set these trigger-based experiments where certain triggers are met, in this case, a promotion at another store. And once that trigger is met, the product enters the experiment, is randomly assigned to treatment or control, and we compare the treated control, the, sorry, the triggered treated units to the triggered control units. And so here's the visualization, right? We have 10 products. Um, about seven of them are actually triggered. Once they are triggered, for example, products A and E are triggered at the very beginning of the experiment. One's assigned to treatment and one's assigned to control. And then once they're triggered, we consider them triggered for the duration of the experiment to prevent different types of bias. I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But that's the basic structure of pricing labs. We have typical AB experiments and triggered experiments. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about what we do to reduce noise. One of the first things we do is a type of multiple randomization. Rather than just randomize by product, we also want to randomize by time. So it's the basic, a way to think about this is just every product day, every day, every single product, you flip a coin, and it's assigned to treatment or control for that day. This significantly reduces the standard errors for mainly three basic reasons. One, your treatment group is now doubled. <laughs> every product gets treated. Second, your control group now doubles. Every, every product in the control group, every product is in the control group for some, some time period, you get more counterfactual estimates, better estimate of the treatment effect. Um, the last thing is it actually increases the variation for when the policy is implemented. Instead of the policy being implemented on one day, which might have day of the week or demand trends or anything like that, it, it starts and stops and it increases the variation. It increases the variation of your covariate. Mathematically, you can imagine that that would help. And again, this shrinks the standard errors by 60%. I'll go through a nice visualization of this, right? So here, you can kind of see every, once the experiment starts on day eight, every product day is randomly assigned treatment or control during the experiment. Now this is all nice, it works wonderful, it doesn't actually work. Um, and the reason it doesn't work is this carryover effect. And so I'm gonna walk you through how that works, right? So when we, if we're doing a price lowering experiment, we lower our price, that means that the conversion rate's gonna increase. The conversion rate is the, of the customers that see the product, what's the fraction of them that buy it? Lower prices, that's gonna obviously increase the conversion rate. People are, more people are willing to buy the product because it's cheaper. Now there are other teams at Amazon that do lots of things, Amazon's a big company, so another team that we don't work with is gonna be the search team and they're gonna say, oh look, this product has a high conversion rate. We should show it to more customers. And so therefore, that product is shown to more customers. If the next day, we then raise the price, it goes back to control, it will still be more prevalent in search queries because it has the high conversion rate from yesterday. And so this carryover effect means that our prices today can affect demand tomorrow, regardless of what our price tomorrow is. And so if we're switching back and forth, this is obviously gonna bias our results because our treatment's gonna affect the control periods violating SEPA, right? Um, and so the way that we go around this is we do a crossover, which is kind of a mixture of the two, where we still divide the products into two groups. Um, one's, treated, or one's treated for the first half of the experiment and one's treated for the second half of the experiment. And the way that we get around this carryover effect is that the first week of each of the time that a product is treated, so week seven and week 10, the first half, week of the first half and the first week of the second half is dropped from our analysis. So we drop the weeks that we think are biased by carryover effect. And this allows us to get a lot of the benefits still. Again, all the pro products are treated, all the products are controlled. And this shrinks the standard errors by about 40 to 50% based on our simulations, which isn't quite the 60% that we had from the random days, but it gets us most of the way there. And it isn't biased by this carryover effect. Um, again, there's a negative that 
I told you that there are two types of experiments, A-B experiments and trigger-based experiments. We can't do trigger-based experiments because we need to know that they're going to be, the policy is going to be applied in both halves of the experiment, but that's life. But this is a very good improvement for A-B experiments. The next thing I'm going to talk about is our treatment effect estimator. The basic premise is that our difference to difference estimator, it works. It's unbiased, but when we're doing experiments, we don't know what's going to happen. The whole point of experiments is to do stuff that you don't know. If you're doing an experiment on something that you know is going to happen, then you're just wasting money. And so you want to do experiments on things that you're unsure about. And so there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. And so a lot of uncertainty with noisy, with noisy data leads to a lot of unknown and useless experiments. If, the, if you get, un, if you get, not necessarily, <laughs> but if you get results that, don't, that aren't precise, then a lot of the times the results aren't insightful or useful. And so we try to use all of Amazon's data to get more precise estimators beyond just a simple difference in difference. And so we do that by controlling for seasonality and pre prior trends, filtering out outliers, and then controlling for some of the differences in treatment or control that naturally come because of randomization. Um, I'm going to go through each of these relatively quickly. Um, you could read more about this in the paper. Um, but the basic idea is the very first experiment that we ran in pricing labs, I was an intern, I analyzed this experiment, and the business team went to me and they said, hey, which products were most positively affected by this policy? And I looked and I said, okay, which products had the largest sales growth? And it was a whole bunch of summer products. We got a fan, we got swimsuits, we got floaties, we got a splash pad. I was like, you know, I think most of this has to do with the experiment being run in May than anything, any pricing change that we did. And so um, something that we've done is that we try and control for pre-experimental trends in the analysis at the product level. So the product level, is it growing, is it decreasing based on the seasonality, and detrending the data based on these trends. Um, again, I'm high level for the next three slides, but you can read more about this in the paper. Um, the next thing is that we have thick tails, right? We have lots, um, a lot of our sales come from a few of our products. That leads that if, say, we have our most important product, and all, our most popular product, not to say most important, most popular product, and all of a sudden a celebrity recommends it in the middle of our experiment, and it's in the control group or in the treatment group, it can significantly affect the results. I say this from personal experience. Um, and so, what you need to do is you need to kind of find these outliers and filter them out a little bit. Um, we do an adaptive outlier. The basic idea of adaptive outlier is that the threshold at which you trim or Windsorize the outliers um, varies by sample size. So that as your sample size increases, the proportion of products that you drop decreases, but the number increases. And so you can read more about that in the paper, but that's how that works. And then um, treatment group balance, again, this is not about bias, this is about getting more precise estimates. And so there's gonna naturally be imbalances. The imbalances are gonna come for two main reasons. One, we care about a lot of different products. It's hard to have perfectly balanced treatment and control groups when you're varying, sorry, a lot of different variables. It's hard to have balanced treatment and control groups across multiple variables that are not necessarily correlated. Stuff like profit or page views or sales, all of these things, and price, like all these things are gonna be important to us, but none of, they might not be, they're not gonna be correlated, and so you can try balancing very good, and we do lots of different randomization techniques, but there's gonna naturally be some imbalance. The other issue is we often care about subgroups, right? You might have an experiment that you don't know what the results are going to be, and the results end up being flat. And you're like, okay, well, that's, that's disappointing. But in the end, you might find that for this group of products, it's really positive. For this group of positive products, it's really negative. That's why overall it was flat. But maybe we should launch it in this group of products that's really positive. And so not, even if your group's overall really balanced across all these different metrics, it might not be as balanced for the subgroups that you're looking at. <coughs> 
And so again, just by subgroups, naturally there's gonna be some imbalances, so we try and control for those imbalances. Um, we do causal force to do that as kind of a non-parametric control for different, for imbalances in the treatment and control group that naturally occur. Um, again, read about in the paper. But by doing all these three things, you can find that the standard error is decreased by about 30%. Um, the last major thing I wanna talk about is substitution. Um, and cannibalization. The whole idea here is if you have two products that are similar, one's assigned to treatment, one's assigned to control, the treatment group lowers its price, then customers will leave the control product for the treated product. That means that your treatment's obviously affecting the control group, which violates SATVA, violates our estimate, estimates assumptions. Um, and so if you just do a difference to difference analysis, you can see in this case, um, the control group's losing sales and revenue because customers are going to the lower price treated ACE product. Um, and, the product and the treated product's getting increased profit and everything. But, and so if you do difference to difference, you're measuring a large effect, but the overall effect for profit at least might actually be negative in this case, right? Um, and so we need to identify substitutes. We're at Amazon, we have 10 million products per marketplace. We can't do a cross elasticity matrix. Mm -hmm. That does not, you can't do a 10 million by 10 million elasticity, cross elasticity matrix. Um, and so what we do is we use a lot of these machine learning to identify possible substitutes. And so the two basic, two basic models are first, if they regularly show up in the same search queries, if you look up fancy red boots, nice red boots, red boots, and the two products keep on showing up at the top of the search query, then we consider them substitutes. The other is if customers are regularly seeing two products at the same time. And so two products, if, if you're looking for Again, we'll just use fancy red boots, and you see the same two products, two customers who regularly look for this type of thing, regularly see the two products at the same time. And so here we find these large clusters, we break them up into smaller clusters using a clustering algorithm. And then when you do that, you do a, that increases our standard error by about 20%, which means that you need to increase the standard, the sample size by 50% to maintain the same power. And that ends up being very problematic because all these experiments are very noisy. And so that's something that we're ongoing research of, hey, maybe we can, maybe we can do these cross-price elasticity sub-matrices for these clusters instead of for the overall population. You could read more about that in the paper. That's been hit and miss so far, but that's ongoing research. Um, but yeah, that's the main thing I have. So this summarizes what I talked about. But so you guys, I can take, I think, one or two questions. Yeah, we've got two minutes for questions, so. Yep. So anyone has any questions? Yes. When you think about um, potential spillovers to products that are not directly in your experiments, uh, but merchants that are competing with Amazon? Yeah, that's a good question. That's something that's um, additionally hard because that makes the clusters that we already talked about that increase their noise even larger. Um, we've tried measuring that and to very little success, even with the um, products with the largest effects that we have, we've been unable to measure that effect so we don't see a lot of evidence of that, and so we just kind of ignore it. But that's something that we could look down the line. Yes? Is there value for an agency like the DOJ for having search query data from data-driven approaches to market definition? For like different trust cases and things? I'm just seeing this, it seems like a solved problem we often have in policy, so I'd be curious of. Any thoughts on yeah, so the people who don't know, I'm chief economist in the antitrust division of the DOJ right now as well. Yes. <laughs> so I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> Lots of novel data could be interesting, hypothetically. <laughs> yeah? Do you have any 
sense of the cost of running these experiments from like lost revenue, that kind of thing? Just curious, like round, round numbers. Yes, but I'm not allowed to share them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Sure, but if every experiment's low-powered, then that's not. Um, they're all testing different things, and they're all kind of low-powered. That's the kind of issue here. Um, it's a noisy data environment. Lots of these products have, again, we have fat tails. That means lots of our products have very low sales. Um, and lots of other, like I said, lots of other factors are affecting our demand outside of a small price policy change that we're often testing. All right. Thanks so much. That was terrific. And we're, we're right on time. So I am next, so hopefully I can also stay right on time. I'll see if I can. This, and you, you raise a lot of fascinating issues, so I'm going to come back with questions uh, when we come to the discussion. Um, all right. So um, I'm going to present a slightly different paper probably than the other ones. And part of the reason, I've, as you, a lot of you know, I've been working on a lot of methodology related to all, everything that's been talked about. But one of the things I wanted to illustrate today was the different kinds of methods you can use. Um, and so in this paper, we're going to be combining experiments, observational data, and structural modeling, um, which is something that I did a lot of a long time ago, but haven't been writing as many papers about that recently. So it was fun for me to come back to it. So the motivation is, first of all, online marketplaces are obviously important. I think that doesn't need a lot of motivation for everyone here. One, um, one element. One element of, uh, of that's common in a, especially a lot of service marketplaces is that profile images are prominent. And so there's, a, there's an existing literature already that talks about how profiles can actually drive disparities in outcome. For example, um, race can be, uh, can be an issue um, that's been shown in Airbnb. And my, I should have mentioned my, um, one of my co-authors on the job market, Emil Palico, he's amazing. Um, and he did some work on this in Blah Blah Car. It's been shown in gender and also physical beauty. But there's, of course, a trade-off because we all know that the profiles increase engagement, they increase trust, and they can have positive things for behavior, too. Um, when, in this paper, we, we kind of break apart conceptually, even though, of course, there's not an actual hard line in practice, but conceptually, we think about two aspects of a profile. One is your type, which is something intrinsic. Of course, in the end, you can present you know, as androgynous, so it's not completely um, given, or you, know, you can kind of disguise your race in principle, but we're thinking about the types as things that are intrinsic and unchangeable, and the style are things that are more easily changeable. And so we're going to try to separate those out and look at the interactions with them. And one of the first things we see, we're going to be using data from the Kiva peer-to-peer -peer giving platform. Um, and I'm running a lab at Stanford now that's social impact, so a lot of my applications these days are social impact. Um, but one of the things we see right away is that style features, whether you smile, how you take your picture, how the quality of the picture, are correlated with type features. And so because of that, if you, if you elevate um, style that performs well, you are going to also change inequality on the platform for better or for worse. And so we're going to try to get at that today. We want to think about how to design policies based on style that promote both fairness and efficiency. But if you want to operationalize that, you first have to understand the structural parameters, the causal effect of these different elements. So we're going to do that in three parts. We're going to use um, uh, observational data first from the Kiva platform. And this, of course, for most of this audience, it's probably not as novel, but we still haven't seen as many applications of computer vision in economics. 
And so we're going to use computer vision to extract the image features and then try to estimate the causal effect of, of a specific image feature. Now we're going to use the techniques for unconfoundedness. Um, you know, we'll use causal forest-based techniques from my GRF package. Um, but of course, you can't take those as completely credible because I can extract 100 image features and I have a big data set, but I don't know whether there are some features of images that I haven't extracted. Um, and so it's, it's impossible to completely rule out unobservables. Plus, we're going to have bias due to regularization just because we can't, we can't isolate a 100-dimensional surface. So to kind of complement that, we then, in the second part of this, we use an, an, a randomized experiment with recruited subjects. And you don't hear about that as much in some sides of tech, but back in my day, the day, I did use these types of experiments as well. Is they're, they're more used in product design or also when you're trying to get um, understanding of hard to measure quality. So here we have a recruited subject and we do a conjoint analysis where we're going to show people choices and we're going to ask which they prefer and then use that to estimate the preferences of their utility functions. And because we're controlling everything, we're going to use generative adversarial networks to isolate features of the pictures. We're going to have a more credible causal effect. But we're going to trade off. We have sort of external validity in the observational data. We have internal validity in the recruited subject. Now, it turns out that we're going to get the same answers in both, so we don't have to resolve the conflict. But in general, you would have to resolve the conflict, and that, that's always hard. And in the last piece, we're going to do counterfactuals or offline simulation of different platform policies. Now, in this particular case, our, our counterfactuals are kind of contrived, so we're going to build a stylized model of the platform for the purpose of this academic paper. If I was doing this with a firm, I would have a more complex um, but less transparent uh, simulation of the platform. But I think this, this pipeline is something that I've used in tech, and I think that people sometimes use, but it's not as commonly talked about. So Kiva is an online micro-lending platform. There are borrowers who post lenders. There's lenders who select borrowers. The borrower receives a loan. The borrower repays. Um, most people eventually do get loans, but we're going to think about the speed of getting a loan as one outcome. And generally, the more engaged the lenders are with the borrowers, we think the more efficient the platform is in the long term. We're going to have profile images. They're going to look kind of like this. Some of them are far away. Some of them are up close. So we'll call it a body shot like Jane in this picture or um, Alicio. And it turns out those are going to perform less well than up close pictures. We see a lot of correlations between what we call type features and what we call style features. So style, smiling, sunglasses, body shot, eyewear, blurry, outdoor. These are all things that people could fairly easily change. And by the way, on this platform, they upload like five pictures. So the platform could also um, automatically select from them. I won't go into the details because I think it's pretty familiar. We're using unconfoundedness techniques in high dimensional data. So again, we're going to use um, the, the software from our GRF platform, the AIPW double robust estimates. We're going to estimate propensity models. We're going to estimate an outcome model. And the features include all of the extracted vision features um, from the images. And so from this, we see that body shot is negative. That's, that's on the far left, pretty precisely estimated um, negative effect on the cash per day raised. And on the right, we see that, um, that uh, smiling is going to be one of the ones we're going to focus on um, as, a, as a positive. Um, so then we also find gender disparities. Um, it turns out on this platform, women do better than men. This is a little awkward for our paper just because there's actually some good um, structural reasons why you might want to give to women. And Esther Duflo's research and others has shown that women may spend the money better. 
Um, but in this particular context, we show that there are not gender disparities in repayment. So from a, from a lender perspective, you, there's, you, there's no gender disparities in whether they'll repay, both conditionally and unconditionally, but you still might have a preference for that. So our, our for fairness is actually gonna be helping men do better on the platform, but, and we have a couple of other dimensions too. I'll talk about the gender today because it's easiest to explain, but it's, um, you know, you might, there's some qualifiers as to whether that's really the social goal. So here we're gonna, we're gonna see the smiling and body shots. Smiling has a 7% effect. The having a full body is, is minus 8%. 33% um, of men smile com compared to 77% of women. So there's a really big gender difference in whether they're doing this, this recommended feature. We do a Gelbach decomposition, which is, uh, if you never use these in tech, you should use them every, it's, it's, once you do them, they're, they're really lovely and people um, can, can really enjoy them and they think you're brilliant because they think you made it up. Um, I wish I'd made it up, but I didn't. Uh, and it's a nice way to decompose the sources of, of, a, of a treatment effect into different types of, of characteristics. So we find that adjusting for type and, and, and style um, a, a, would actually make the gender disparities less um, and, and so, but let me actually keep moving now in the interest of time. So what we do in our recruited experiment is we use GANs, and here's some examples of some of the pictures we use. Um, we, we take these images and then we change them from smiling to not smiling using generative adversarial networks in order to make sure every other aspect of the image is the same. We generate both images through GANs so that one of them isn't sort of more real than the other. Um, and we, then we do this conjoint experiment. And our results corroborate the findings. So we, we, after giving people discrete choices and seeing which one they choose in this recruited panel, we estimate the preferences for male, smile, body shot, et cetera. And we just estimate a simple logit model there. Um, and by the way, running these things is super simple. And, in, and for academics, it's like a dollar a subject. So you know, for like you know, a couple thousand dollars, you can get a really good panel. And you get the results in like a day or two. And that's one reason you also run them in industry as well. You get very quick data from this. So these are our estimates. So um, now we go to the last part, which is the counterfactual simulations. So again, this is a little bit stylized. But when we think about the simulations of the platform, we think about starting with a pool of available borrowers. And those borrowers have a set of characteristics. And then there's a market design. And the market design is the ranking algorithms. And of course, everybody who works in certain types of tech platforms knows that the heart of everything is the ranking algorithms. And so that's one of the things you're most likely to be testing and most likely to be varying. And so when we talk about market design here, we're going to think about what is it that's actually shown to the lender out of this, the pool of all the products or all the, in this case, all the borrowers, you could show them. And then we're going to model the lender's choices. So the borrowers, we're going to take the probability of style given type out of the Kiva data in our baseline. So that's going to be calibrated based on the real data. In the market design, that's what it's going to be a little bit contrived. We're going to have a, 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 something that's mapping your characteristics to, to your probability of being shown to the lender. And then the lenders make their choices according to our estimated model from our um, randomized experiment. So we compare a couple of different policies. The first one is a naive policy. And that naive policy basically is I, what I think of is this is what your tech firm would do if the engineers just do this without the economist or social scientist thinking about unintended consequences, second order effects, equilibrium, everything else, which is 
what happens a lot of the time, for those of you who are familiar, until we all showed up. Um, and so what you would naturally do is you'd say, hey, I'm an engineer. I've got a great idea. I'm going to use computer vision. I'm going to extract image features. And then we're going to stick them into the recommendation system. The recommendation system will optimize for the engagement. And that means that people who smile will get promoted. So since we've already estimated, you know, the click prediction models are, of course, much more elaborate, but they're elaborate versions of logits. We have a simple logit. We have parameters. So we're gonna, we know that people who do smiles are going to get more engagement. Therefore, in this counterfactual, we promote people with smiles. Then we have what we call pro-fairness policies that increase the prominence of underperforming borrowers or reduce competition, which also is going to reduce inefficiency. So these are what we call like bad ways to get fairness. And then we have a good way to get fairness, or an effective way, which is where we model partial compliance, where we nudge everybody to have better profiles. And so when we nudge everybody to have better profiles, we can change the distribution of the pool of borrowers. That's why I've, I've changed that there. And so this is my last slide. What we end up doing is we look at the efficiency equity trade-off. So on the x-axis is how many people choose a male borrower. Remember, males are our disadvantaged group here. And efficiency on the y-axis. The baseline is started. Our naive policy is good for efficiency but bad for fairness. Restricting competition is bad for efficiency and good for fairness, but trying to get everybody to smile um, improves both fairness and efficiency. And we think these types of techniques could be used in practice. So I use my time. Um, I, have, I think I have two minutes left by my count. So have so questions? Yeah. I have a question. Um, so. When you're pulling out these features, like smiling, how do you identify those? Are they the most causal or just the most salient? Did you go looking for something? Great question. And this, I mean, if we weren't going to do an experiment afterwards, we might have done a few things differently. So we treated our observational as just sort of a preliminary round, so we weren't that worried about multiple testing and things like that. So what we did is we just took the off-the-shelf image um, classifiers that, are, that we use, the ones from Facebook, and, and just classified everything. And then we did all the AIPW estimates and ranked them. And then we looked among the ones that were most effect, had the biggest impact, we focused our paper on the ones that we thought people could easily change and also that we could easily experiment on. But in practice, of course, I might stack rank these and do multiple testing and have a more sophisticated algorithm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is this is partly this is a, a good paper for this kind of session where, in some sense, the goal isn't to estimate the underlying structural preferences for smiles, but rather to say what is a pipeline and a platform you could use to take people's preferences and potentially pre repeatedly measure them and then use that data to optimize your platform. But I think that these things are very context-specific. And by the way, I think a, a much more salient one even for the short term is that if I tell everybody to smile, then people might not do that. And there's another external validity thing. If I tell all the men to smile and they give fake smiles, those smiles might not work as well as the smiles that the women had. So this would probably be an iterative process. We actually are currently working on like classifying the smiles as fake or not and trying to get into that in a little more depth. 
Um, so those are those types of validity questions you would worry a lot about if you were putting this into practice. All right, very good. Hi everyone, um, uh, my name is Wenjin, I'm a data scientist at Netflix. Today I'm gonna talk about some of the work we've done um, in trying to add more robustness into the way how we extrapolate causal effects between a study population and a target population. This is joint work with Apurvalal, who was um, our summer intern this past uh, summer, and he's a PhD student at Stanford. And also with my uh, colleague, Simon Eidemanier, who is a data scientist on our experimentation platform team. This, uh, this platform is responsible for orchestrating data analysis of tens of thousands of A-B tests across the whole Netflix services from front-end UI, user interfaces to back-end um, streaming system optimizations. So a lot of times, whether we intend to or not, we do causal effect extrapolation. So you conduct a study on one population, could be an A-B test, could be an observational study. Um, even if an A-B test, sometimes your study may not be representative of the underlying population whose effect you're trying to learn, especially in, um, in a big platform like ours, we run a lot of tests. So one day I could be running a test on across all the different device platforms, mobile devices, smart TVs, and laptops, and, and a colleague of mine might want to run a new test on only mobile users, but his test experience would not uh, work well with my test experience, so then we would have to not share our sample, right? Then we would mutually exclude each other. This means that the mobile users in my sample would would not be, that distribution would not be representative of the underlying population. And this happens a lot when you have so many different tests from different teams running. Um, so, so your sample may not be representative and, and you're trying to extrapolate the effect on the underlying population. And sometimes, um, we may want to just generalize a, stu a opportunistic study that we have to a broader population. Say I had the chance to do an observational study in US, um, and I want to know whether that effect uh, can be generalized to the whole North America. And even when you don't have representation problems and when, when you are just interested in the study population of interest, you may want to think about if I were to productize this treatment today, how, what, what that treatment effect is gonna be a year from now where the population that visits our product might be different. So this kind of effect, effect projection uh, has many dimensions of challenges and I know Eleanor is gonna talk about some of those. But even in the short term treatment cases, say it's a non-member homepage for Netflix and People come visit, they may want to sign up. We may have treatment that, um, that will increase the likelihood of someone signing up. Uh, a year from today, the people's device use preferences might be different and our market penetration might be different. So how many people are already familiar with our product, that distribution in the population is gonna be different than the population that we're testing on today. So even on these effect projections, we need to think about how covariates change. Um, so of all these examples, I that all these examples I talked about, we essentially have a sample average treatment effect that we learn from a study population. Uh, but our goal is really to learn a average treatment effect of a a, a specific target target population that we haven't run the study on. Um, 
So a common approach is we use the sample average treatment factor state to guess estimate the target um, target population ATE. Um, most of the sometimes this could be a good approximation if the distribution of your effect modifiers are balanced between your study and target population and your effect modification mechanisms are similar between the two. Um, so how this plays out in in um, in real data, we can take a validation from a real A-B test and pretend that's my target population, right? So the result from that test is my quote-unquote true Tate. And I just take a segment of the test population and pretend that's my study population. So the A-B test on the uh, result on that segment is my quote-unquote sample ATE. And the question is how well can we really recover the true effect um, on that full population from this um, sample effect on the uh, on the study population. And that really depends. In some cases, we can do pretty well. So I have two case studies here. Um, in one case, the say is a pretty good estimate, and another case, the say could be pretty off. So how can we systematically improve upon this um, to reduce the bias in our extrapolation? So this is a story of internal versus external validity that many of you are already familiar with. I'm working towards bridging this gap at, um, is, is, some of the, is one of the goal, our long-term goal. And today I'm gonna to talk about some of the progress we've made on de developing that framework and software prototype for generalization and transportation and the covariate shifts, so when the covariate distributions change. Um, the data structure is uh, we have covariates, uh, a selection indicator of whether you are in a study population or not, and the treatment indicator and outcome. So basically, you um, we, on the study population, we measure covariates, treatment and outcome, um, which we know as equals to one. On the observation, um, on the non-study population, we only observe covariates, right? And then we, we consider, um, we'll, from here on, we'll talk about distribution on this combined population of the study um, and the non-study population. So essentially the estimates that we're interested in are defined on this combined population. In generalization, we're going from study to the combined population. So it, uh, um, just take that geography hierarchy because it's easier to think about. Um, so you're going from ATE of the US to the ATE on the North America. So in here, your estimate is, what would the tr uh, outcome be if you have treatment A, and if we could, you could measure treatment and outcome on everyone. The transportation problem is when you go from the study population to the non-study population. So ATE on US to extrapolating to ATE on Canada. What would be the treatment, uh, the outcome under treatment A on the non-study population? Right. So you have some, we uh, assume some uh, standard identifiability and then confoundedness. We have consistency, ignorability of treatment, um, required treatment and selection um, overlap of the treatment mechanism and overlap of the selection mechanism with respect to the covariates. And for generalization, we have also assume, we have to also assume the ignorability of selection. For transportation, here we are making a transportation problem is hard. And we're making, we're assuming some of that difficulty away by assuming that the outcome model is stable across the strata. So that the outcome model I learned on the study population is quite close to the outcome model on the non-study population. And this is a very strong assumption. Admittedly, we are assuming away this one and focus right now um, in the phase one of the project on the covariate shift problem. And the outcome model problem is gonna be something that we have to deal with 
or get as close to some kind of bounds that we can um, down the road. Okay. So under this assumption, we have two estimates, right? The first one, generalization, is, is the average outcome that we would learn in the study population averaged over the combined population, since it's a generalization. And transportation is that outcome averaged over the covariates on the non-study population. And, and now we, we're going to talk about two, uh, two options of data availability and sampling that you may have. The first one is that you may have an IID sample of the combined population. But IID here, I, what I mean is that you may not have treatment and outcome on your non-study population. But in your sample, the joint distribution of the covariance selection is still representative of the true, um, of the true selection mechanism. So you can learn that selection <coughs> score. But most often the case is that um, we only have IID sample on the study population, but you know what's the marginal rate of the selection, and you know how the covariance skews. So coming back to my um, test exclusion example, um, I, know, I know that in my, in my uh, study sample, the mobile users are under sample by, by half, right? So, so I can, so the, the idea is that the problem one is versions of them are well understood, so we can just take that first, first case and just rewrite those ratios into covariance skews and marginal rates. Um, so, so I will focus on for, um, the estimation. For these slides, I'll focus on that uh, data sampling option one and the paper we have, uh, we have both cases. So let's first look at the journalization on the left-hand side. Uh, many of you already recognize this is a recasting of the missing at random problem where the S is the missing at random indicator. So we have, um, we have three, at least three types of estimators. One is the outcome model estimator where you estimate mu as the outcome, you learn the outcome model, outcome expectation in the study population, you average that across your, your combined sample and you'll have a inverse propensity score weight, right? It's, um, it's a sampling, sampling weighted problem, so you just weight the outcomes by the probability of being selected and probability of, um, of getting the treatment. And finally, you have the augmented inverse propensity scores where instead of weighting by the outcome, you weight by the residues and then you add the outcome model and this one will be double robust. In the transportation estimator, now on the right-hand side, on the right column, um, so S has the role of, right, of, um, of, of in, inside the outcome expectation, so there it's analogous to, to its role in the estimators on the generalization, but now S also has the role of almost like a pretreatment covariate um, because we're conditioning on S equals to zero. So that's why the, um, the rating by S is a little bit clunky here. But all these are implemented in our software um, using cross-fitting and a few ML options. So back to our validation example. When Z was already pretty good, our adjustment didn't do much better, and that was the left-hand side. Remember the orange was the quote-unquote true effect, yellow was the state, mm -hmm. and now blue is our adjusted estimates. It didn't, it didn't <coughs> do anything. Uh, when Z wasn't very good, the adjustment did help a bit, but our estimator was still, um, had pretty high variance, so there's some work that we need to do to make that more, um, more efficient. Um, so one of the questions that popped up was why would say better in one case, case study versus another? And from there we look at the balance of the covariates. So in this graph, 
the top panel is case study one, where say was very good. Uh, bottom panel is case study two, where say was, oh, thank you, where say was, was not very good. And each point is a covariate in, it, it's a, a pretreatment covariate. And the more left, to, the more to the left of the x-axis, the more balanced that covariate is between the target and the study population. So you can see that in case two, there were a few covariates that were quite um, imbalanced between the two. And when we do the adjustment and those other uh, brown dots, um, in, in case two, it did help bring several of the covariates um, much closer to the left-hand side, although in one, it did worse. So in summary, is we implemented uh, a prototype of a Dover Robust Framework for Generalization Transportation um, with, with, that supports these two sampling options. And we also have implemented a HT diagnostic and some qualitative imbalance assessments. So far, we've seen the adjustment gains some material only if you have good, uh, even if you have large imbalances. And the, some of the next step, uh, right now we are working on really defining very specific, narrow, narrowly scoped use cases that we can implement on the platform, like those test exclusion uh, use case that I just mentioned, that can do these adjustments automatically for us. And then also in terms of effect projection, allow, um, um, take a test, allow the user to specify a few range of covariate changes and then allow us to project out what would be the worst and best case scenario of this treatment a year from now if the covariate shifts were within this range. Mm -hmm. And the phase two would be how can we start tackling some of the, um, loosening some of the outcome model assumptions for transportation. Um, and I'd love to hear uh, um, later in questions, what's your experience for causal effects extrapolation since it's been a problem that we've been thinking about a lot. Thank you. Questions? Yeah, we have time for questions. If not, I, I, I could ask, oh, go, go I ahead. Have a question, I have a question too. Um, so help me, this is something I have to think about. So, if you're, so in the example that you gave, right, mobile users are discounted by half, basically, right? Does that mean that our, the efficiency for those estimators would be like the sample size would be in half? Uh, or how does this affect efficiency no, in that way? It's the, it's or a because, distribution, right? So, so not, you use yeah, the other yeah, distribution. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's the not, efficient will still be the same. Okay. And can you estimate this distribution prior to the experiment? Can you do like power analysis with like, even? Yeah, we, so, so there are two ways we could go about this. If I know ahead of time mm -hmm. how that, how my sample is not going to be representative, yeah, yeah. then I can upsample, downsample. And this okay. happens, for example, when we're trying to test on a low traffic area. Okay, um, yeah. And there, because our experiments run for a limited amount of time, so in those low traffic areas, you're, you will get more of the higher engaged users mm -hmm. um, than, than what is actually in a population. So in those cases, we can upsample, but in the example that I gave where someone just decided to start a test and split the traffic, then we do have that problem that you can, you have to do post-doc adjustment. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, um, actually, why don't, we, why don't we move on and I'll circle okay. back to this. Um, so, Eleanor. Um, so, hi, I'm Eleanor Dillon. I'm at Microsoft Research. And I'm presenting a, a paper today with a number of my colleagues who are or were uh, with me at MSR. Uh -huh. Here we go. 
So I think this is a nice paper for this session, and particularly as we transition into the back half, uh, because it, it really illustrates what it's been like working at a tech company that um, different groups at Microsoft come to you with questions. We go shopping through our tool bag as economists. Sometimes you say, ah, yes, here's the tool you want for this job, and you answer the question, and sometimes the question you realize is not exactly answerable with the tools that we have, and it, it generates some some new interesting work. So um, in this case, this is an example of a time when people want to think about long-term outcomes. So there, there will be no experimentation on this for a couple of reasons. The first is that you, you can't really wait to realize the long-term outcome in an experimental context. And there's also, in a lot of these cases, so um, the one that I'll talk about here is thinking about the, the sets of incentives that we give to corporate customers and thinking about retention. You could think about uh, treatment plans for chronic diseases. It's really not always ethical to randomize. So sometimes you're, you're left with what you can get with observational data. So you're interested in thinking about a long-term objective, but you may want to make decisions about whether you're sticking with a policy or shifting much sooner than the long-term. So how can we start to think about the long-term before we actually observe it. Um, so there, there's a long-standing practice uh, that some, some people on this panel are gonna be very familiar with, uh, of thinking about short-term proxies to, to stand in for as yet unmeasured long-term outcomes. And if possible, you can think about many short-term proxies and build them together into an index to predict your long-term outcome. A limitation of this approach for us is that the, the key assumption is that your treatment path only runs through these short-term proxies. And in many cases where you're continuing to engage with the, the individuals that you're interested in, that's, that doesn't work because you've been treating the whole time from the short-term to the long-term. And those early indicators of success may affect later treatment plans which then affect the middle indicators of success. So we're, we're going to keep shopping and add another step into the process, um, which is to, to strip out those intermediate treatment effects. So as a first stage, we're going to look at a sample where we do observe the long term of, uh, in this case, customers who were treated repeatedly, but pull out all of the later treatments so that we have the effect of short-term proxies on long-term outcomes as if we stepped back and never touched those customers again. And then we can predict that outcome, that adjusted outcome, and use that as our measure. Uh, and then the last piece of this that I want to think about adding in is uh, the, the use of uh, flexible machine learning-based models to enable you to play loose with the number of features and surrogates that you're thinking about. So, uh, err on the side of adding more features in, adding interactions, adding higher moments or nonlinearities. And we're going to think about how we can do that while establishing uh, name and orthogonality of our final estimate of interest. So what that does is it helps insulate some of the noise from going big on your early stages so that your, your final parameter of interest uh, is it, con it converges faster than your early models. So you can go ahead and you can't be wrong, but you can be a little bit noisy early on and err on the side of flexibility 
without introducing too much bias into the final stage. Um, so we, we end up with something that, that is a little new. We're, we're shopping from a lot of uh, existing ingredients, but in the process of putting those together, we, we get something that's a little bit new. So um, let me go a little bit more into detail in the example here. So uh, some hypothetical firm uh, has a number of distinct treatments that they can offer. Uh, so you could give customers a discount, you could give them special services like technical consulting, and you want to think about comparing them. So one of the reasons we're thinking about the long term is if we're thinking about comparing different strategies, they may have different paths to impact. So some of them might generate a lot of sales right away and that's it. Some of them might be a slow burn, but over the next couple of years, that's really what's going to bring in customers. And so if you want to think about comparing strategies, you really need to think about a multi-year outcome, which is hard to measure sometimes. Um, so each period, customers are gonna receive treatments. We're interested in the cumulative outcome. So uh, say cumulative sales over the next several years if I treat a customer in period one. Um, and then I also have a number of surrogates that might help me predict that long-term outcome. You notice in the data here, what I haven't included is that what we usually think of as X, so confounders. We're going to just recognize that anything that you could think of as a confounder could theoretically be a surrogate as well. Um, and so S is, S is everything else. And we're gonna throw all of those in. Um, so to, starting with the, the Athey et al. paper in 2018, um, the, what the, the more canonical surrogate approach looks like um, is you think about treating once, you have a number of short-term surrogates, and the, the key assumption is that all of the path from the treatment to your outcome of interest is running through the surrogates. So in this case, you would have to think about something that you observe relatively soon after treatment that affects sales today, sales next month, sales two years from now, and all of the path of the treatment goes through that surrogate. And that's, that's a key piece of, of making these models work. Um, in this case, what we're more likely to see is something like this. So I treat a customer today, I generate some short-term impact that I see in these surrogates that also affects short-term sales. That short-term impact may affect the probability that I treat them next month. You know, if, we, if some of these incentives are targeted at fast-growing customers, generating a little bit of growth is also gonna generate more treatment. That treatment will generate more growth. Um, the fact that I treated in one period may establish relationships or expectations. It may improve uh, or decrease the probability of treatment in another period. So you have a lot of blue arrows going back and forth here that are going to violate the traditional surrogate assumptions. Um, so what are we gonna do? Um, a lot of things, but each of them are pretty familiar. So it, this is a multi-step algorithm and I'll go through the intuition of each in practice and um, then, then talk about how we're adding them all up. The key ingredient here, which we're borrowing from other surrogate papers, is that you, are, you want to think about two data samples. You need one data sample where you actually observe the long-term outcome that you're interested in, and you need your surrogates in that sample so that you can predict. 
um, you don't need the treatment in that sample. So you may have another sample that uh, has these new possible treatments that you're interested in where you haven't yet observed the long term, but you need your same surrogates in that sample. So one data sample has to have T and S, one data sample has to have S and Y. In practice, our long-term sample is also going to have T, maybe not the same T, but it's not that these customers were never getting touched. So we have to think about the treatments that were involved in that process as well. Okay, so, so step one, um, for this first part, I'm going to imagine it's only two periods because we can actually do the math then uh, and see how things work out. And we're also going to assume that all of the relationships are linear, which we won't actually do in practice. So um, just turning this graph into equations, uh, you can see that in each period, your surrogates are dependent on the same period's treatment and possibly on the last period's surrogate. Your outcome is only dependent on things this period, this period's uh, surrogates and the treatments run through that. And the next period, your treatments will depend on your last period's treatment and also possibly those surrogates. Um, so we do still restrict this, this, there's a wall here between the surrogates and the outcomes and we're gonna maintain that. It's just a intertemporal wall instead of a one period wall. Um, so what do, how do we do this dynamic adjustment? It's basically a backward iterative process. So um, we're going to start by thinking about the effect of one month's treatment on one month's outcome and estimate that using some appropriate unconfoundedness causal model. We use double machine learning in this case. And then subtract that out. So now you have your first adjustment to outcomes each period, which is the outcome this period if I wasn't treated that period. And then you do it again. You're going to estimate the causal effect on treatment in one period on adjusted outcomes in the next period and get that causal effect. And then subtract that out again. So now you have outcomes if I wasn't treated this period or last period. And you can keep moving backwards for as many periods as you need to in order to strip out all of the intermediate effects between the beginning of your sample and your ultimate endpoint. Um, and this is uh, built on a paper by Lewis and Serganis earlier that, that basically established that you can, you can do this without messing things up. Um, so once we've peeled back and we have our adjusted outcome, the interpretation here is the effect of surrogates in period one on all of your outcomes over the next M periods if we stepped back and didn't touch anything. And that's what we want to predict using our, our surrogates. So um, you, you can see, it's easy to see in the two periods, um, basically all of the white arrows here get sucked out of this process. So when you have this adjusted outcome and you're thinking about the path from the surrogates to the adjusted outcome, and if you then sub that into your treatment effect estimate, you're going to only have, you've basically moved back to that first graph where um, all of the effect of your treatment on your cumulative outcomes will move through those first period surrogates. Um, so the last piece, this is a lot of math and I don't uh, need to go into it in a lot of detail. You have this surrogate index that maps all of your surrogates to your predicted outcome. 
Um, the simplest approach would be this surrogate index representation. Um, oh, so one more step is I'm gonna residualize your treatment and this surrogate index against all the other possible confounders, mostly because it makes um, this next discussion look like neat OLS for now, although this is also part of a double machine learning algorithm that has other properties because you can add flexibility. Um, but you can see, you can basically run an OLS regression where you have your treatment from your new short-term sample, but you've just subbed in this index for the final. But I'm gonna suggest that in some cases you may wanna do this more complicated thing. Um, I don't think you need to go through all the details of this equation, but if you go through, you'll basically notice that an expectation, all of that added term at the bottom should disappear. So um, the, the ratio of probabilities is about the likelihood that you were in the experimental sample. So if you have balanced panels, that'll all turn into one. Um, if your predicted outcome was good, then your actual adjusted outcome minus the prediction should fall to zero. But if that's not the case, um, this added term gives you this name and orthogonality condition. Um, so essentially, this is about the, the derivative of your final moments with respect to all of the nuisance functions that you had to estimate to get there. Right, so we need to know the relationships between the surrogates and the outcome. We need to know the probability of inclusion in each sample. But we don't really care about those. And so the reason to follow this approach is that you can lean on everything that we've learned about being more flexible with, um, with functional form, with adding in extra covariates and then penalizing in order to avoid getting too noisy. And you can be a little noisier. You can be a little less nervous about your noise and still have a reasonably robust uh, estimate of your, your parameter of interest. Um, so quickly, I'll, I'll point out that we are still making assumptions here. Uh, and they're, they're not that weak. Uh, so no unobserved confounders. That's the every time you're working in observational space, you're there. Um, no paths other than through the surrogates, uh, which we've talked about already. And then the last is stability. But I want to point out that the stability with this adjustment actually becomes a little bit more palatable because what you need is stability in the relationship between your surrogates and your long-term outcome. All of the blue arrows about whether you're, you're changing the relationship between treating this period and next could change because you've already adjusted them out. Um, so I think I am at time, but I will just quickly <laughs> point out that uh, we, we did a simulation in practice, and um, you can essentially, you, you will get all of the noise out uh, with this process. Do you have time for a question, or? Yeah, maybe one quick one. Sure. Um, I'm curious, one of the things that has kept me up in the night in the past <laughs> is with, um, you know, the way you describe, I think, stability is a big key assumption here, is uh, when you're, if you're looking at evolutionary changes and say product, whatever it is, this approach is really scalable. But I've often worked on more revolutionary kind of innovations, and then being able, the question of like, what's a long-term effect is still a key one that comes up. Um, and it's frustrating to not have like a good answer to that question. I'm curious if you thought about like, are there, even if there's, um, I don't know, a principled approach to 
Yeah, I mean, so I think again, we're not, we're not looking for stability between treatment and outcome, we're looking for stability between surrogates and outcomes. So that may be a little bit easier to achieve. It could be a completely novel treatment, but um, if you don't think that you've done anything that's going to change the way, say, like sales in one period are going to predict sales over the next couple periods, then uh, you can get your rest at night. All right, great, thank you. All right, so we're going to switch into the panel part, and um, let me. I'm just going to make a few remarks to kind of summarize the session, and then I will switch around to more interactive discussion. So um, I love this session. First of all, thank you guys for the the great. Um, there we go, for the great presentations, and I feel like we actually did a whirlwind of. Oh yeah, please. So panelists, come on up. Um, we did kind of a whirlwind tour through um, problems and solutions in causal inference. And so one of the things, just to like step back and put all this in perspective, you know, I started working at the Microsoft Search Engine in 2007, and at that time, um, I encountered all of these problems. And by, at that time, there weren't very many people to talk to about them, and it was really hard to even convince people that these problems were interesting. So it's really exciting to see now so many solutions coming out. And so one of the things that we, um, you know, to, to step back, it, it seems from an academic perspective, I think when I would tell people about this in 2007, they would say, well, just isn't every problem solved with an experiment, and what else is there to do? Like, how could experiments be interesting or hard? You know, you have group one and group two, and you compare the means. You're done. Um, so I just want to like circle back that you know there are lots of reasons why um, that's not good enough and so one of the things I want to start with the panel with is asking more reasons why you can't run experiments but even if you can run experiments why they might give you the wrong answer and so especially if you're experimenting on marketplaces you know, if you do an experiment on users there's a feedback effect on products or suppliers and there's an equilibrium there's short term there's long term so there's many many reasons why a short term ab test isn't going to give you the right answer and so if i think about what we saw in the panel so so far um, we've hit on a bunch of topics which are all sort of solutions to various problems and causal inference so one of the ones that Joe talked about, which many of you know has been also a huge theme for me, is heterogeneous treatment effects. And you know, one of the first reasons I got interested in that was because you, you could see if you, just seeing a short-term A-B test might not be a good indicator of what's gonna happen in the long-term. There might be some mechanisms through which the short-term and the long-term line up and other mechanisms through which they don't. And so if it, you, you can at least understand where the treatment effect is coming from, that just helps you start even like building a theory of what's going on. So it's important just from that perspective. Also, of course, you can just release a, 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 something on just the people on whom it works, but that really assumes that the short-term and long-term line up. And so Eleanor's presentation was just really highlighting that this issue about short-term and long-term, and when I've, I've had conferences about social impact and when I've had conferences, pretty much every firm I ever go to, they identify their lack of confidence that their short-term metrics meet the long-term outcome as like the number one problem. 
And you could think about that as actually the number one problem why tech can destroy society, right? It's like why YouTube leads you down, you know, terrorism, and it's why people get radicalized. It's all because we're optimizing for engagement. And even if everybody's well-intentioned, like in a social impact firm, if you're, you know, if you're trying to measure to, say, achieve educational outcomes, but all you can measure are people's engagement with an educational app, it's very frustrating. And it's not just because you're, you have a profit motive, it's actually really hard to do that exercise. And that's one of the reasons we did the work. I was with Hito and Raj Chetty, who had completely social impact applications in mind um, on surrogates. I'll mention one thing from, I didn't have time for me to ask this question, so I'll do it now, but with, with Eleanor's presentation, she talked a lot about making sure that we had captured all of the causal impacts. The, the stability of the surrogates for long-term outcomes is also a huge problem. So even though I'm a huge proponent of surrogates, I actually started working on them in the 90s when I was working on enhanced 911 technology, of all things, but I was looking at ambulance measures as a predictor of long-term outcomes. But what, Despite the fact that I'm a, an advocate of using them, it's very rare for them to actually really give you credible estimates without some pretty big caveats, because these stability assumptions are also a problem. Right now, I'm running a lot of survey experiments about misinformation, and so we're asking people about intentions to share, because measuring long-term outcomes is difficult or, or you know, underpowered. But you're always worried about this short-term proxy of a survey metric actually representing the long-term. And, and so experiment or demand, where I ask people a question, they might be answering it in a way to try to make me happier because they understand they were in an experiment. And so the, the relationship between what they say in the short-term and what they do in the long-term might be different in the context of the experiment than otherwise. And so we use tricks, like we, we give them an intervention in one context and we survey them in another context to try to improve that stability of the short-term outcome. But it's never perfect, um, and that's a, a big challenge. So um, I, I also recently did a meta-analysis of vaccine hesitancy experiments where we also used survey outcomes. And again, the, the biggest threat to the conclusion of our paper, which was that these social media advertisements work, was whether the survey outcomes were good proxies. So it comes up in all sorts of science, and I'm really excited about Eleanor's work kind of pushing that forward. Um, another thing that came up in Wen Jing's presentation was uh, talking about transfer learning, and that's another reason to do heterogeneous treatment effects, because, and that comes up in all parts of social science. You run an experiment in one place, and you want to know, is, does it have external validity? Um, something she didn't talk about, which is, I think, still very nascent, is trying to use the data to understand what's stable. So I have a line of research with Ping Kui on, um, from Tsenghua on stable learning. There, are, we, we put it in the context of prediction. We have a paper in Nature Machine Learning that's trying to connect the prediction problem to the causal inference problem. I'll just say I don't think we've solved the problem at all, um, but we, we, we try to bring in some causal inference techniques to try to understand which types of, res of results were more likely to be stable. But at some level, it's an unsolvable problem, like the surrogates problem, but you can make progress against it. Um, another thing that Joe mentioned was noise and thick tails. And in, in the tech in industry, almost every place you go, there are super thick tails, and that happens all the time. Joe talked about some of the techniques that he had used. Um, together with, with Hito Imbens and Michael Pullman and Peter Beckel at Berkeley, we have a paper that's, um, that's just uh, gotten, it's conditionally accepted JRSSB on trying to 
um, improve the precision of estimates using um, some, some semi-parametric methods for dealing with thick tails. Um, Joe also mentioned stratification. That's super important, especially in marketplaces. Like if you run an experiment on advertisers and Amazon is an advertiser and eBay is an advertiser and Walmart's an advertiser, like you really want to stratify. Um, and Hito and Benz and I have a survey article where we push hard on this stratification and I think that's underutilized um, in practice, but it's something that I worked on in practice. Joe also mentioned interference, and that's super important. Um, Stefan Wager and one of my students, Evan Monroe at, at Stanford, have some work on estimating that interference. Um, Hito and I with Dean Eccles had some work on hypothesis testing under interference. Um, Johan Ugander had some work a long time ago that sort of really set us off on the graph cutting literature. So all of the things we try to do in marketplaces, is, that's a super active area and there's lots left to do. Another thing Joe mentioned was, was um, crossover experiments. So if you're in marketplaces and you're worried about equilibrium, you might want to experiment on a marketplace as a whole, but then you have power problems. So um, he talked about, you know, uh, Hito and some co-authors have been working on um, certain types of double randomization in marketplaces, um, switchback experiments and crossover experiments like Joe talked about. Um, I have a PhD student, Roshan Zhuang, where we've been working on optimizing how you design staggered rollout experiments to minimize variance. And we also have some recent work on um, making that adaptive. Finally, I talked about structural models, and that was one of the first things I did at Microsoft in 2007 and 8 was to try to bring in structural models. So there was a question of, well, what do you do if you have a brand new idea? And one thing you can do is you can take these short-term metrics and then try to build a structural model of the long-term outcomes. That was the paper I presented today. Also with Dennis Nekopoloff, we have work on doing that with advertiser bidding models and so on. I think that has been slower to diffuse in tech, partly because it's less familiar and it's farther away from what the machine learning folks are familiar with, but I think it, it definitely has a place, and as we get more economists, there's more ability to do that. Um, finally, this idea of like estimating substitution, I have a paper in Annals of Applied Statistics where we actually did try to estimate substitution and complementarity among 2,000 things by using a machine learning model to reduce the dimensionality of it. But the big problem that makes that less credible is lack of a sufficient exogenous variation. Because if you have 2,000 pairs, you need a lot of experiments to get enough variation. That was something I also worked about on in the 90s and basically completely drowned in the computational issues. And it was kind of fun to come back in the 2010s and 20s and actually be able to make progress. So pulling all that together, I think we actually saw a little bit of most of the important themes in, in experimentation in this panel today, but I just really want to highlight for the young people that each of these topics is completely not solved. We've all like <laughs> written papers, but, but some of them are, are not fully solvable, which is good because that means we're always going to be making trade-offs and making better papers about them. So with that, let me now like switch around to the, 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 some additional questions. The panel, of course, you can feel free to um, react to any of that. So the first question I wanted to put to the panel is, um, you know, why, why is it, I gave some reasons, like we have marketplaces, we have equilibrium, why experiments don't work. But among those examples or other reasons why you can't just solve everything with randomized experiments. And maybe we'll just, we can go down the line. Um, so Jeff, do you want to start? Yeah, happy to. Um, and I, I should have introduced you, actually, which I failed to do. Bad, bad, bad moderator. So why don't you introduce sure. yourself uh, and, and cover yeah. for me? Uh, so uh, my name is Jeff Ferris. I'm, uh, I run a 
data strategy team focused on um, Amazon's media businesses, so video, music, um, Audible, Twitch. Um, there's a number of reasons why experiments often don't work uh, or aren't the best choice. Um, some of the ones that come to mind, first of all, you know, especially if you're dealing with customer experience, it's a terrible customer experience to go through and show one customer one you know, treatment, another customer another treatment. Uh, that's a kind of trust-busting experience that companies like Amazon, really every other uh, major tech company out there would be completely unwilling to consider. A really good example within Amazon would be something like Prime. You know, figuring out like what Prime benefits to offer, what prices those should be offered at, that's an eminently solvable problem through an experiment. Also a terrible customer experience and something that would be a complete non-starter. Um, so building solutions around that that enable us to answer those questions, maybe not in a non-experimental non setting, but uh, by retaining customer trust is key. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, my name is Wilco Schultz Mollendorf. I lead the pricing and marketing data science organizations at Wayfair. So, Wayfair is a, a home goods uh, retailer. Used to be at Amazon. So, for the tough questions for Amazon folks that the Amazon folks can't answer, I'll, I'll do my best <laughs> to, to obfuscate and answer a little bit. Um, I think so. I, I, jo Joseph talked about some of these, you know, uh, with pricing experiments, you can't, uh, you don't want to randomize uh, across customers. So, I think that's, that's challenging. So, you want to pair. Things with models, but we've also run a number of experiments on delivery experience. So, you know, if you're thinking of delivering a two thousand or five thousand dollar couch, um, your preferences for that may change. We saw this over the course of the pandemic. Customers were, you know, they wanted the couch dropped off in front of their house. Um, and then, you know, as we're exiting the pandemic now, people want this to, the, this couch to, to enter into their home. And if you're playing with things about, you know, the speed versus reliability trade-off of delivering a couch or, or large parcel items, customer preferences are changing in unknowable ways over time. Um, you know, running continuous experiments like this is very expensive, so what we'll often want to do is run smaller scale pulsing experiments to kind of keep getting some information, but then pair that with an observational model or a structural model on the back end um, so we can kind of, you know, extrapolate to the, the entire population of products and customers. So I think, I mean, it's just very expensive and customer preferences are changing over time, I think would be the summary on that one. Are these all live? Can you hear us anyway, even if the microphone's? Okay. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll add another piece to that, which is that um, one of the things I've seen a lot is we're interested in something that you can't necessarily enforce randomization on. So you want to, we're running a loyalty program or a membership program and a company is interested in whether that's actually doing anything, but you need the customer's participation or uh, you need them to actually install the update. And so I think I, IV had a huge moment in economics and it's maybe receding a little bit because it's so hard to find good instruments. It's actually easy to find good instruments in tech because you can run the experiment, you just can't get perfect compliance. And so thinking about how to adjust for that where even when you're running an experiment, you may still need some more advanced techniques um, and also thinking about external validity and everything else that came up. So. Experiments will get you part of the way there, but not all the way to your answer. One other point I want to make too, experiments are really costly. Like the engineering effort that goes into instrumenting and building an experiment is really costly to do. And so often, in order to get to the point of, hey, we should run an experiment and test this thing, we need to have a pretty good body of evidence to say, if we run this, it's likely to be you know, a win for the business. Um, and so that's where a lot of observational methods really come into play to help build that case and build that credible evidence. Yeah, and that, that was one of the points I was trying to make in my paper as well, that, that that was a realistic, I mean, it's an academic paper now, but it was a realistic, like, simulation of, you know, if I was building a case to Kiva that I thought they should change something, I would 
be incumbent on me to build some work if they actually had to build a new product. Mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, that's different Like if you're just adding a feature into a ranking algorithm versus building something new. Yeah. But a lot of times, the economists are coming in when it's new uh, and, or it's something that you know, we haven't done before. Um, let's see, so in terms of, uh, in terms of, of doing this kind of work, um, I, I'm curious, in these challenging settings, what, was, what, what, did you, what techniques or, or skills from your academic training um, did you ex use and expect to use, and what was sort of surprising to you about how important it was in trying to pull off these more complex types of pro projects? Do you want to start on this end this um, time? Sure. Um, and I think one transition from academia to, to tech is uh, your, your perceived sphere of competence in some ways. That, um, when we're, when we're writing for an academic audience, you think about the area that you are expert in, and it's a pretty small space, and you really are trying to focus on the question that you think you can answer the best. And so um, partially it was just about re-reminding myself of the rest of economics um, and, and being expansive about the way you're thinking about your, your tools. Um, and so I think a really broad set of applied methods and micro-applied methods and remembering to think outside of what you're familiar with and looking at what you can do to solve problems. And also I think just um, sort of moving on your precision feasibility frontier that when business decisions have to get made, sometimes it's better to have a semi-informed answer that you know there's still some bias in, but you're moving towards uh, something rather than saying, well, I can't answer this exactly. It's never going to make it past the referees. I'm moving on. Um, I think that's great. I think uh, maybe an unexpected skill was both written and verbal communication. You know, Often you'll find yourself as an economist as kind of the diplomat or interpreter between multiple technical and business disciplines. So, I mean, I think a lot of the interesting problems that we're working on are at the intersection of maybe operations research and econ, or, or ML and econ, or general analytics and data science and econ. And so you're often helping these other science disciplines interpret what, what they're trying to say and then translate that to business audiences. I think we've, you know, economists are, uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight of seeing how entrepreneurial we have to be in order to get out applied work. You have to go convince somebody that they should give a hoot about your topic you have to go convince other people to give you data. You need to write it and basically just slam it into your abstract and intro and get people to really care about something in, you know, in, in two or three pages. And I think that that skill set is valued at a premium when you're communicating with senior executives. Um, and often our, our peers in engineering and machine learning don't get that. And so if you really want to get the idea out, get the test out, especially as many people have alluded to, these, exp these tests can be extremely expensive. You're talking about multi-million dollar tests um, and they can change the course of, of business strategy. Uh, having uh, really effective communication and limited time scale with senior executives, that can be super helpful and that, that means translating on behalf of your partner sometimes. So that's an unexpected skill. Yeah, um, <clears throat> in my experience, I wasn't surprised by, you know, the level of like technical depth that I'd need to achieve um, or like, you know, coding acumen. I think what was a surprise, and this is kind of what Wilco was highlighting, was like you have to meet your stakeholders where they are. Um, our stakeholders are very smart people, but they're not trained academics often, and they're not trained economists. And so they're familiar with some concepts like P 
p-values and significance, but in some ways those can actually be limitations as well because they're trained that, oh, if something's not magically below 5%, you know, that it's something we should ignore. And so being able to, like, meet your stakeholders where they are and help really think about incremental improvements, you know, um, there's perfect is often the enemy of good, and so being able to think through what are the like simple analytics, analytics we can do that are actually scalable, that aren't maybe perfect, they aren't like perfectly causal, but they actually get us a lot of the good that we're hoping for, uh, and then really be able to push the business in incrementally positive ways to build momentum. So every time I'm on one of these panels, even <laughs> with people I don't know very well, um, I'm always just amazed at how aligned we all find our experiences. And I also feel kind of sad because I was kind of, I wish I'd had you all to talk about when I was, I was like, is it just me? <laughs> but I, I wanted to pick up on some of the themes like Eleanor talked about, um, you know, be, being comfortable with the breadth. And, and it, I, th I found that it really stimulated me to be a much better thinker because you know, just as an example, the first th one of the first things I was asked to do was to value um, Facebook's and Microsoft's investment in Facebook, which is the most profitable and impactful thing I probably ever did because it made billions of dollars for Microsoft. Well, doing the cloud was also probably pretty big, <laughs> but um, but it, w it w nonetheless. And and you know, I built a model and I estimated a, a few parameters and I had standard errors and I was like, okay, this can be an input. But, but, I, but, but I'm like, well, I left this out, and I left this out, and I left this out. You know, you can't use this number. I, I've only worked on it for three weeks. And they're like, look, we're making a decision. This is the other spreadsheet. This is the PowerPoint. You know, so tell me, just add something or subtract something. But, like, your number is better than this number, so give us a number. And that was the most petrifying experience of my life because I was used to just having a slide with all the caveats and being like, well, this is the only thing I estimated, and they were going to go tomorrow and put a number on the frickin' thing with a B on it, you know? But, but it, was, it, was, it, it, it made me such a better economist and a better business person to really think about how I could put numbers on the things I didn't know and so on. The economic training was super helpful. I also think for young people like this, being bilingual, I, I, was, when I, what I was surprised about is like how many times people wanted to bring me to meetings because I understood both the economics and the statistics. Mm -hmm. And so they just wanted me in the room in case there was a question they couldn't answer. And so if you get good at that, you're gold. And suddenly you're punching above your weight, you're going to meetings with much more senior people because they want you there. To, to be able to do that translation. So it's super valuable, and it's something that economists, I think, are really uniquely qualified to do. We just have to work on our communication skills. Um, and also, like, now I'm running a lab in academics, and I think I'm putting out a lot of papers. And part of the thing is I've learned, like, when, when is good enough? Um, and, you know, we, and, and not to take five years on each paper because you miss the, you miss the boat, basically. The world moves on. And, you still have to be careful, but I, I feel like I've learned how to make better decisions of, of how to keep moving. And tech taught me that in a way. But it's hard to learn. It's hard to let go. And I think that's the biggest mistake I saw young economists make when coming into tech is they, they're just too slow. We are trained to be so mm -hmm. slow. Mm -hmm. um, and so learning how to be good and fast. Um, but it's hard. So don't think that just because it didn't come naturally to you that there's something wrong with you. It can be learned. Um, but it takes hard work to learn. So um, I'm, I'm curious, actually, maybe I could, I, I kind of just gave my anecdotes on that, but, but maybe some, you know, Jeff brought it up, but if you guys could elaborate on, 
on how you, what your experience has been at learning to do this translation and how you got good at it um, and, and what, what you found effective. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think one of the things I found pretty early on, I think is really critical when you're um, kind of early on in your career in tech is coalition building is such an important part of how you make progress. Um, it's not just sufficient to do really excellent work. That's kind of like the starting point for everybody. You've got to convince, first of all, your team, and then, you know, especially if you're talking about big changes, your, your team has to convince other teams. And so finding the people, you know, within your community, you know, Wilco is somebody that I've worked with in the past that he's part of my coalition. Um, I've got other great scientists that you start off with, kind of like your peers building a really good solid group of people that are great at like taking an idea, honing it, refining it, um, and then figuring out how to translate it from a great science idea into a great product idea, like that's kind of the magic of how you move forward. Um, and so I don't think there's any other way you can do it except just practice. You know, like writing is such a key skill that the only way I became a good writer in tech was just writing dozens of bad docs. <laughs> um, and then you get better and better and you find what works and then you continue to, to create those patterns um, and then kind of move forward that way. Actually, before you move on, let me follow up on the writing thing because yeah. it's something that I've tried to adopt in, in other places. I know only indirectly that um, the rumor is that Amazon has this rule that you write something before the meeting and then everybody sits mm -hmm. down and reads it. And in my academic stuff, I've moved to that in my lab, like having, you know, if, having people stop and read at the beginning of a meeting rather than just having people go verbally. It happens to work really well for me because I have a hard time listening. I, I do much better reading. Um, but I'm curious if, like, if you were going off to a different firm or if you were trying to translate some of this, like what out of, what out of that, and of course don't reveal anything yeah, confidential, yeah. <laughs> but what, what, what are your learnings yeah. from, from, from needing to write? Yeah. So there's a few things it does. So number one, it organizes your thoughts. You know, if I'm going to go into a meeting, it's one thing to go off the cuff, but if I have to actually prepare a doc, I've got to put forethought into it. And also elevates to the requirement to like set up a meeting with somebody, so it helps preserve people's times because if you're going to go into a meeting, it implies you have to have a level of preparation. I think the second thing it really does too is you know, rather, it creates a durable, like, output of a meeting. You know, you're going to get a doc out of it that if somebody asks, hey, what did you discuss in that meeting? I've got a, a prepared doc that I can share with somebody else. Um, so I think those are some of the big virtues that come out of it. Um, and then I also think that everybody comes in with a very level playing field in terms of their level of understanding. If you spent the first 20 minutes or 30 minutes of the meeting reading a doc, you all have a pretty shared understanding of the problem at play. Um, and then I, I find that you end up having a pretty focused conversation because you don't need to talk about the basic idea. You move on to like, I have three questions that I need to answer from this meeting. You now have the background knowledge. Let's focus on those three questions. It's, it's the, the document culture is something that I miss the most after leaving Amazon, honestly. Like the six pager that you'll hear about is, is um, super powerful. You know, uh, having uh, talked with people at growth companies or startups and then also being at a you know, more growth oriented public company, um, senior leaders there are really accustomed to pitch decks, you know, so like they have, they have a, a slide deck and they're really, they're, they've honed that skill by pitching to investors and sometimes that bleeds into the tech and, and science culture and so you'll see scientists like pitching their ideas but there's no, you know, plan or precision behind that. Like you need the technical white paper to pair with that. You need then the corresponding, you know, product plan to go and execute that into engineering. Um, so I think that it was something that I try to bring into, into our culture uh, with mixed success in different parts of the groups, but, um, but it's super powerful. To, to, your, to your earlier question about like frame, you know, skills or, or things that, you know, anecdotes that we think, you know, you know, change of references we've come in here. 
um, the speed thing that you brought up is is so massive. But you know, somebody that was trained in structural I/O, you know, take a long time to write a paper, take a long time to write the model. Um, I realized, you know, I, the, the advice that I got that really helped me change my mindset was, you're trying to beat somebody doing something in a spreadsheet. You're that's your benchmark. Um, and to your point on the the Facebook evaluation that was big, I remember, you know, one of the, the most terrifying first projects I had to work on was, you know, uh, in. At Amazon in 2013, they were evaluating whether to change the price of Prime. They'd never changed the price of Prime previously. There's no elasticity that was previously estimated. And so, you know, Pat Byer turns to me, he's like, let's go figure it out. I'm like, I don't know what the heck to do. And, you know, we're going to get pulled into a meeting with Bezos to talk about it. And I think there was something really interesting that the company did, though, is they had pulled, you know, experts in finance and other parts of the company, got together six estimates. Um, and then synthesized those. So I, I was conservative. I thought it would have been a bad move. Um, it turned out that history has proven me wrong. Um, <laughs> but uh, also, I had nothing to go off of. I had to make up a model and, and, and then synthesize it into the spreadsheet exercise that was, I thought, very productive. So the speed thing is, I think, pretty important. And I didn't completely answer your question, too. In terms of um, key skill in writing, too, by the way, uh, when you write a doc for in tech, I always give advice, like, imagine Andy Jassy is going to read just the first, like, two paragraphs of your doc. You've got to put everything that's interesting that, and anything you want feedback in those first two paragraphs. When we write docs in academia, all the interesting stuff is, like, in the conclusion. It's, like, eight pages down. <laughs> Nobody's going to get that far. So that's the thing I really instill in my team as they're learning how to do this is, like, imagine you've got to write it for a general audience, and you've got to do it in such a way that condenses all the like, most important stuff into the first couple parts. Yeah, I think... Um, coming back to your, your comment about translating, the other big thing that was different for me about coming to work at Microsoft Research is the interdisciplinarity. So uh, I'm working with a lot of people coming from statistics and from computer science and recognizing the parallels and the kinds of questions that these different fields are working on, but also some of the differences. Um, my my PhD advisor Jeff Smith kept a sociology to economics translation glossary because he was thinking about uh, you know economics of education, and I feel like I now have my economics to computer science translation glossary. Um, so I think recognizing when you're talking about the same thing in different words and when the philosophies are really different is also just clarified to me what economics does well, what we can learn from other fields, where we're behind. Uh, I don't think that I'm doing anything to dispel the dismal science. I think that um, a, a lot of these fields come in saying, well, here are my assumptions. Assuming my assumptions are right, what's the most efficient way I can estimate this? And what I often feel like I'm adding to the conversation is, let's assume our assumptions are all violated. What's the most robust way we can do this? Um, but it's, I think, seeing where these different pieces come in, figuring out how you can have that cross-field conversation and, and find the common values is something that's really valuable and I'm learning so much in that space. So yeah, I just wanna really double down on what Eleanor just said, I completely agree. And you know, from some of you who know me from the last 10 years don't know that like I wasn't doing anything to do with, I was doing very little econometrics or machine learning before I left Microsoft. I had a couple of prominent econometrics papers, but I w there was working on identification, and I really hadn't done much on estimation at all, and I thought it, actually thought it was really boring. Um, <laughs> but then in, inside the tech firms, the thing that really changed for me was that I constantly had to explain in plain English what I was doing, 
And you know, people are like, oh, you know, you're, you're a Harvard professor, Steve Ballmer hired you, fine. But that really didn't get you very far. You know, like you had to convince people on first principles. And so if I said, well, economists do it this way, I'm like, well, I don't care. You know, that's wrong um, or that's dumb. And so, you know, why are you so concerned about standard errors? Why do you care about it being unbiased? You know, and so having to constantly think through what I thought was important and why actually made me a better econometrician, I think, than if I had been trained as an econometrician. Because I mean, I didn't even take the field sequence in econometrics. You know, so um, I just took the first year courses. So I, I mean, I was really not trained at all. But then I had to figure it all out, um, and 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 I was better because I was questioning all the assumptions. So I think that that process of becoming bilingual to machine learning and computer science is what led. And at first, I was trying to get all my. I tried to get Hito, my husband. I tried to get all the econometricians interested. And they're like, "Why is this not interesting? Why are you doing that?" So I was like, "Well, I guess nobody's going to do it if I don't." And at first I thought, well, I'm not qualified to do this. But after a couple of years of doing the translation, I realized, well, no, I was qualified. In fact, I was well qualified. I was better qualified. And so I just want, like, I, I really want to encourage people to, like, lean into that. It, it's a feature, not a bug. It, it, it makes you smarter, basically, but to, do, to be forced to do the translation. And you get lulled into, a, like, an intellectual sloppiness by just not thinking through the logic of why you're doing what you're doing and just accepting it. And I would say in, in the consulting work I've done and the antitrust work I've done, that skill in turn translated well because, you know, I was, again, needing to think through from first principles whether something made sense and that made me a lot more confident in it um, rather than just, well, this model says this and this model says that, but if I've just memorized that, you know, I'm not going to be confident in what really applies in a circumstance. So, um, so let me, and, and I, I, I guess, uh, does anybody want to respond to that before I change the subject, or? Here, here. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, it's, it's not that you're born good at this. Like, I think some people have better aptitude than others, but, you know, you practice and practice and practice at it and, and get better, and you have to just stay curious. Um, so a different topic is, um, you know, the scaling up. So we've talked a lot about conceptual issues, but there's also just the fact that, you know, in, in my part, I was actually writing code for, for parallelized logistic regression in C-sharp in 2008 because there weren't, you know, I was in an environment and there was no open source stuff. So, like, that's how I had to spend my time. Now, now we have a much better environment. But still, you have to learn this new set of skills about what works at scale and what kind of compromises to make. Do you guys have comments about how to work in this large environment? Yeah, um, I mean, that's, it's a lot of what I've been thinking about at Microsoft. My, my team is working on an open source package to try and get uh, a lot of these new causal machine learning models out and lower the coding burden. But one of the things that happens when you make it easier to hit go is that um, people are going to continue to use those. People who may not have gone through a PhD sequence of economics where they drill in all of the rules of causality. And so one of the things that we're really thinking a lot about is how do you make, because Economists can't necessarily be in the room for every business conversation. We know that's not happening. How can you build tools and build accessible tools that help people make better decisions? Um, 
but also working on, on guiding people. So I think this is an, it's an area of research, it's a really open space of how can, how do we test our assumptions a little bit more? Uh, I mean, this is a question that I'm sure we all get all the time, which is like, well, how do you know that unconfoundedness holds? And I'm like, oh yeah, you don't, <laughs> <laughs> which is a very unsatisfying answer. Um, but, but what can we do to get there? What can we look at to say, uh, probably we wanna add some more features before our variables before we run into this? How do we um, convey the assumptions in ways that are easy to understand and make it easy for people to see what they would wanna do? So I think that um, building both tests and automation, and honestly, that's something that even in academia, particularly with these more complex models, there's a lot of auto-tuning, and a lot of what we do in practice is run 53 versions, see the one that works, publish the 53rd version, present standard errors as if that was the first time we ever touched the data and move on. Um, so thinking about how to do more of that automatically, I think both increases uh, accessibility, but it also increases uh, transparency. It, it builds it a little bit more into your understanding of how you got to where you were going. Uh, automation is key. I remember like some of my first few jobs were like, uh, producing seasonally adjusted revenue growth rates to be reviewed Monday morning by senior, senior executives, which means Sunday night I need to pull data and run a model, and like, if you want, and I had to do that for three years, so if you, if you wanna make sure that your Sunday nights are recoverable, you can actually watch like the great <laughs> HBO lineup, um, you had to automate a lot of stuff. So I think just learning some of those skills I think is key. Um, maybe just kind of three surprises that I encountered here. Um, one is more recent. Um, over the last 10 years that, that I've been doing this, um, so many things have become highly commoditized. A lot more packages are available. So like just, you know, basic searching for, you know, hey, I want to do this thing. And I think with the help of, you know, things that Microsoft is doing, but also academics and then user communities within these companies. You know, I know you've worked a lot on Spark utilization mm -hmm. capabilities within Amazon. Um, you know, something might be out there. And that wasn't true 10 years ago, and it was very painful to kind of go through and code your thing up in C Sharp or Python, or Pat made us do everything in Stata, which was brutal. <laughs> um, the, the other kind of surprise was, you know, make friends, and make friends and engineering community, and there's there so many kind of specialized engineering communities that are emerging now. So, you know, 10 years ago, there wasn't this concept of a machine learning engineer, which was a specialized engineer with, you know, in scaling ML algorithms. We did have applied scientists who were kind of ML scientists who knew how to code exceptionally well. But you know, there, there are kind of a lot of different animals at the zoo now, and if you, you know, find one really well-placed individual there, you can ask them questions. You know, I think as, as I see new PhDs starting, they um, feel like they need to suffer in silence because that's what they did with their advisor, and that's what they did in their very small kind of clustered community in academia, and making friends, especially in these diverse communities, can be useful. Um, the other surprise was in test setup and implementation. Like, I, I've been blown away in, in a positive way by how well we've advanced in terms of A-B testing and execution, especially really complicated tests, but like I am always surprised by how the most, you know, like the smallest error will throw off an entire test. And this is a multi-million dollar test, and it's just botched, and we realize it two weeks in. And so it really comes down to like just being very precise and rigorous and flowing through the treatment all the way through to, to execution, following it, working with your engineering colleagues to understand like this assumption will throw this thing off. You know, we need to, we can't throw out cookies, we can't do this, you know, we need to track user sessions. Um, and those, I, I continuously get surprised by like every test we run, we just like, we screw it up and we have to start again and you, you get better at catching that error but then a new error crops up and so um, just be prepared for that surprise. 
Um, you, you know, Amazon has large-scale systems for causal attribution. It can be used from anything from like marketing to you know like prioritizing one feature over another feature on the basis of like oh we're going to create some value from it. Um, I guarantee you the like underlying identifying assumptions are violated at scale <laughs> all, all over the place. And it's really by design. Um, it's just impossible to maintain like a, a scaled system across so many diverse types of, of treatments in a way that enables you to really rigorously maintain causal identification that you would if you were like highly tailoring, say like an academic paper on a particular subject matter. Um, so I think that's just an inherent trade-off when you're thinking about scaled systems. You need to think through what are the rounding errors that we can embed in that. Um, and then also, we need to be comfortable with the notion that like causality, there's actually, there's, I think it's a pretty decent like spectrum. Um, and then even violations of some of the assumptions in there, I don't think we should go all the way to throw the baby out with the bathwater because creating a, a structured system for like principled, uh, a, a principled um, kind of decision making with well-documented kind of assumptions and caveats is a much preferable solution than a wild west of everybody making random cases for this or that or the other thing. So just to pick up on a couple of those themes, um, starting with what Eleanor said, um, and to connect back to those of you who are still in the academic side of the house, um, this idea of supplementary analysis or adding extra numbers is something that I've been interested in for a long time. Um, Hito and I have a paper in Journal of Economic Perspectives, and we have two papers in Proceedings Papers where we try to summarize these things, propose new numbers, propose new um, ways to assess robustness or assess your assumptions. Um, it's interesting, though, that, of course, I just mentioned three papers, none of which are in our top refereed journals. And that's because it's, it's been actually kind of hard to do research on the subject that has new theorems um, and other things. So we've been using these other outlets. But one reason we've been doing it is because we, we do think it's a really important area of research. And we want to get more people interested in it. And I think if you do come up with you know, a test or a method that lots of people use for sensitivity analysis or elsewhere, it can get a lot of traction. Um, the, um, just to amplify, um, Microsoft Research has got these, a couple of toolboxes which are really interesting for causal machine learning. Um, there's one group that's also doing something called Show Why, which is um, trying to automate assessing assumptions. So they've implemented um, my synthetic difference and difference method. And one of the things you want to do when you're doing difference and difference is you want to think about robustness to different control groups and different weights on different control groups. And so the visualization people have created this beautiful thing where you can, you know, you can visualize how these, these things work and it make it easy to do these robustness checks. And I think the, one of the things I've learned over the years is that the easier you make things for people, the more likely they are to do them. And I think, you know, writing software packages, but also including in the software packages the robustness checks and the sensitivity analysis. And I get into a little bit, because the more, the more code you provide, the more complicated it is, the more you have to maintain. So my co-authors are sometimes like, no, let's not add all that extra stuff. Don't add the fancy graph. What if the package changes? And I'm like, no. It's the graph. Like the graph, if you don't, if you don't make it easy for people to make the graph, they will not systematically check their results. So that's um, pretty important. Um, there's also still things missing, by the way. Our, our, my, my lab is just releasing a package to do conditional logit and random coefficients logit in Python. 
and you know some of those basic features that are in Stata weren't there. So if anybody's interested in doing that demand estimation, um, send me a note and I can send you a link to that package. And then a last thing you guys talked about in terms of screwing things up. So we're presenting a paper tomorrow in another session on um, a big experiment we ran with PayPal. And you know, it was using a production A-B testing platform. But then it turned out, and we didn't figure this out till six months after we had first written up our results, that there was a mistake in the randomization. And so that some treatment groups have been reused. So in, luckily, we knew we could reverse engineer it and fix it, and our, and our main results didn't change, and it was all fine. But um, you know, that I knew this lesson, and I wanted to kill myself for not, like, of course I know. You always check. You always check this. You always write down the way the randomization works. And the moment you kind of take your eye off the ball, a mistake happens. And so in this case, someone else was implementing it for us, and that's why we didn't ask all the questions. But this getting back to writing things down, if you don't write everything down, you're going to make an implicit assumption about how things are being done, and one of those implicit assumptions um, can be wrong. So um, luckily for us, we, our paper didn't get killed. But it was, it was definitely a um, scary couple of months while we were sorting that all out. Um, so let me uh, change over. I know some, some young people in the audience, and I know people are very curious about the job market. Um, we've seen a lot of headlines about layoffs. We've seen offers possibly getting rescinded. You know, the last few years, it's been really hard for me to hire postdocs because, you know, Amazon's sucking up everybody, um, and that's slowing down a little bit. So, but, what, but the, the, on the other hand, there were never enough economists. Um, and so, you know, how can, what, what's the unique value, and what should an economist be thinking about in the job market, in a tougher job market, rather than one where they'll hire you and train you later, even if you don't have all the skills? Do you want to? You want to leave this one with me? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, who wants to jump on that grenade? <laughs> um, I, I think, so, yeah, it's, I mean, I just uh, acknowledge that it's difficult right now. Um, but it's been difficult in the past, right? So when I was on the market in 2012, um, you know, I was also looking at policy jobs, and there were a lot of government furloughs going on. And you'd have kind of depressing conversations with a policy institute that you were really excited about, and they would say, we can't afford to fly you out. Um, and so if you're flying out to see somebody else in DC, we'd love to invite you in and maybe we can interview you and maybe we, maybe we can make you an offer. Um, so, but you know, we're all up here, we're doing fine and we've found a path. And so I think that like thinking about maybe taking a slightly more long-term perspective that like, uh, you know, I, I presume, and maybe these are famous last words, like these tech companies are still gonna be here, right? Like a lot, the, the industry will be here, software is not going away. And so maybe the identity of the top players may change over time, but tech companies will still be here. And I think there's been a durability to, to needing economists in these companies that's been demonstrated now, like I would say 15, almost 20 years now, right? Um, so you know, take the long-term perspective. So maybe your first role isn't that one that you wanted to go for, um, but you will find a path in over time. And I think that these, these companies, you know, having been on the, the review committee at Amazon for a long time and now at Wayfair, I'm looking for things in those profiles that suggest that like you've continued to invest in your skills over time, you've um, stayed sharp, um, they will hire from, you know, if you take a consulting position or if you go into policy or if you take an academic tour of duty or if you're an adjunct professor or you take an extra year in grad school, they will, they will still look at your profile and there is a path in. So um, I would be taking a long-term perspective, continuing to invest in your skills and know that those positions will be there um, in a few years' time, if, even if they're not there today. 
Yeah, two, two things come to mind on that specifically. Um, one is I actually think the tools for like causal analysis, if anything, are more in demand right now, especially as the market has really started to contract. You know, in a low interest rate environment, you can make a lot of bets, some things don't work out, and you just kind of like hone in around the things that have worked. You know, we're in a different environment now, so being able to have some more certainty about which directions we should invest in, which are the big things, you know, that requires a really, um, a really focused way to think that I think is really critical and it's something that folks who have a causal background are really well suited to, to do. Secondly, I think as Wilco said, like I didn't come straight into tech. I went into to consulting first. And I think one of the key things that you learn in your first year or two in tech is how to be a good leader. You know, how to operate in a business environment. And so things you can invest in in the short term, you know, even if it's not the first tech job, but things that you can invest in to help demonstrate your capability to like you know, work in a in a collaborative and business focused environment. I really think that you know that would set you up for success um, to a you know longer path towards tech, uh, towards tech employment. Um, I guess the other thing that I'll I'll add and something that's been a, a theme across the board here is the the wandering paths. So I I started in academia. I'm now at Microsoft Research. You you've gone back and forth, and I think that the Particularly when you're starting out, it can feel like there's one ladder, and uh, you get your your foot on that first rung, and then that is the ladder that you're climbing on. And recognizing the way in which trying different kinds of work continues to teach you different things. What what can you bring? What did you learn by spending some time in consulting or some time in tech that you can take back to academia, and it changes the way you think about research um, or the other way around. And so particularly when, when times are a little bit tougher and you may not get the job that you exactly thought that you were going to get. Um, building on your theme, Milko, that you, you can still keep investing in your skills and you may actually have a, a more interesting and a better time from having tried different things, from having learned what you can learn and everything that you're doing. Um, I guess I'll also just give a plug. Uh, there are a lot of postdocs and scholars at all of these tech firms, so if you're thinking about, if uh, you got excited about seeing real-world problems and what that can do, but you're not going all the way in yet. There's lots of ways to engage and start connecting to the problems that are getting solved in the business world without without going all in if you don't want to. I, I would add one. I thought that was great, and I, I, I like the maybe a better analogy than the career ladder is a clear career climbing wall. Like I think you're going to be moving around and zipping around over time, and, and things will you'll change between being an individual contributor or a manager, things will change over time. Um, one thing that is more prevalent now than was when I was on the market 10 years ago, I mean, there was Yammer, which is now a Microsoft company, and Amazon interviewing, and nobody knew what the heck they were hiring for 10 years ago, and it was it was a risk to go take those interviews. Now there, there are a bunch of startups that are hiring, we're seeing, we've lost a lot of candidates to go be the first economist at a crypto startup. And, <laughs> you know, in a, in a, in a those, that, that may have seemed like a risky proposition, um, when you had, you know, very durable, stable, stable tech jobs, you know, and, and they were hiring in mass. But if tech jobs are not, uh, big tech companies are not hiring in mass, like that, that startup might look a lot more appealing. You go, um, do that for a few years, learn how to do many, many things on top of being a core economist. You learn data science skills, you learn engineering skills, um, and then that's something that if you ultimately want to end up at a Amazon or, or Microsoft or Wayfair or another kind of big company, um, those would be super portable skills. So I would definitely be taking a look at. Not just, you know, this is not something I would have said five or six years ago per se. I would say go look for the econ job, but go look at the data science job. Go look at the um, machine learning job. Um, and then, you know, if you if your heart is in economics and you want to be labeled economist later, you will find that position later as well. I think that's all really great advice. And it, <laughs> just to reiterate that, that you know, it used to be that economists were just 
fueling their way in the wilderness, basically. And so it, the last few years have really been the aberration, but people did make it in even when there wasn't as much of a path. And of course, there's also the government, since <laughs> I'm there now. And like places like DOJ and FTC, you become a really deep industry expert. Um, and so you know, there are a lot of options. The way that I've always looked at my own career is you want to do something where you're bringing something to the table and something where you learn something. So I came in knowing economics and applied causal inference, and then I came out learning machine learning. And then I went into the next thing knowing about the combination, but then I learned about you know, management or strategy. And so you go from one thing to the next, always combining an opportunity to learn and a way to build your expertise. So I really want to thank Nabe for putting this panel together. As always, it's, it was a great group of papers, a great group of people, and um, I really hope everyone enjoyed the session. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.